Well, would you turn in your Bibles to Matthew 24? We um, come to the conclusion of our study today. I, I worked hard to um, just uh, work to the end to get it done today as we will be moving to join Cornwall Street Baptist next uh, week. But I think you'll find that this is really all one sort of focused end that I titled The Final Warning. Um, now, while we are coming to the conclusion of our study, I should note that this is not the conclusion of Jesus's study, of his sermon, uh, because the Olivet Discourse continues to go on through chapter 25. Um, but we will be ending our study today of Matthew 24, which is all we set out to accomplish. And just uh, just to recap and bring this all into focus here, if you remember, the disciples believe at this point Jesus to be the Messiah, the King. And they have seen uh, uh, such evidence uh, leading up to this that has caused them to believe this. They've seen him denounce the religious leaders boldly. They've seen him walk into the temple and, and cleanse it. Um, he has rejected Israel as a nation and proclaimed that the house of Israel is now desolate. Remember that? Ichabod. God has departed from Israel. And then he then predicted the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple um, and all those uh, things really fit right into the eschatology of the disciples. If you remember that they believed the physical destruction of the false religious system would happen, that that would be accompanied by the destruction of the nations, which they hoped would be Rome, and that what would follow that would be the establishment of the millennial kingdom. All of those things fit right um, into that. There would be a new temple, a uh, God would bring back the scattered Jews back into the area, defeat his enemies, and establish this millennial kingdom. So they believe that the kingdom of God is really at hand, and it could be established at any time. And that's really what prompted the two questions in, in chapter 24, verse 3. Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, up to this point, Jesus has thoroughly answered one of those two questions. That was the second question. That's the question of uh, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. Now, Jesus has given them really, if you think about it, more than they asked for, hasn't he? Uh, they just asked, okay, what's going to be the sign? And he gave them all kinds of signs. He listed general signs that we noted were called the birth pains from verses 4 to 14. Those were general signs that would precede his coming. Then he gave them a, a more a specific sign, a very identifiable sign that would kick off those other signs, the birth pains. Um, that sign was the abomination of desolation that we saw in verse 15. And then he described after that the great tribulation, that uh, three and a half year uh, period, uh, which would culminate um, in the, uh, the signs in the heavens, the sun not giving its uh, light or dark being darkened, the moon not giving its light, uh, the, the stars falling from the sky, the powers of the heavens being shaken, and then the sign would come. And the sign, if you remember, was Jesus coming on the clouds of heaven. So Jesus has uh, given them great detail, general and specific answers to their uh, question regarding the second question. And then to transition to answering that first question, that question of, well, when will these things be? We looked at this last week. Jesus tells a little parable. He tells a little, uh, gives us a little analogy um, that really answers that question, but in a general way. Again, just like with those birth pains, it's a general answer 
Uh, if you remember that parable, the point of the parable was to establish one simple truth. And that was this, that if you are alive to see the signs of those times, then you'll be alive to see us coming. If you just relate it to the birth pains, if you're alive for the birth pains or you're around for the birth pains, you're around for the birth. Um, and that was the idea there, that that generation, then he says, this generation will by no means pass away. That generation that is alive to see those things happen will still be around when he returns. Now, one clarifying note, that's not a promise of immortality during the tribulation. Uh, it's just a general statement regarding the time of his coming. You still have to survive the tribulation period. You have to survive uh, the calamity and the persecution that has engulfed the entire earth. And that, um, But that period is a limited time. It's a period of exactly three and a half years or 42 months or 1260 days. So it's a short period of time. So the generation that's there for the beginning of it will still be around for the end of it. Um, and, and that's a general answer to their question of when will these things be? And he has given that general time frame really beginning um, in verse 36. And he continues that on through verse 31 of chapter 25. So he's going to continue to address that question. When will these things be? And he'll do it more specifically. So today we're just going to look at how he answers that question in verses 36 to the end of this chapter. So let's read it today. Verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour that he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you so much for the tremendous opportunity we've had to be in Matthew 24, these uh, past eight weeks, and we thank you for the opportunity to come to this conclusion uh, here, of this section, Lord. And we, Lord, we understand that this is a very powerful warning, Lord, to all who will be alive during that time. And I, Lord, I just pray that you would give your people ears to hear and eyes to see, Lord, the uh, important truth that the uh, these words contain. Lord, we are hearing from you, from the divine one. We are hearing about the coming of Jesus. And so, Lord, just really open our hearts today 
to understand these truths. Guide us into your truth by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we begin, allow me to point out, I think, what should be the most immediately observable fact from reading this passage. Hopefully you noticed it. Four times in this passage, and even once in Matthew 25, we'll look at it in a second, um, we see his statement regarding that no one knows the day or hour of his return. Did you notice that? No one knows the day or the hour. And what we've just covered up to this point is very interesting. Jesus has given us very unmissable, unmistakable, worldwide signs that would be general indications of his coming, right? And I can still say general because even during the tribulation, what's Jesus say? Immediately after the tribulation of those days. But we don't know exactly, specifically when. What will be the exact day? What will be the exact hour of his coming? Look at how many times it's mentioned. It was mentioned in verse 36, and obviously I pointed that out last week. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But again, in verse 42, there's the other place. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Again, it was mentioned in verse 44. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Again, in verse 50, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour that he's not aware of. And again, in verse 13 of chapter 25, look down to that one. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. So really, when you look at the entire Olivet Discourse, Jesus mentions it five times that no one will know the day or the hour. We haven't been given that. However, despite Jesus' five-fold repetition of this statement, people still try to come up with clever ways to establish a specific time. I, I, it just boggles my mind. But five times he says no one will know the day or the hour. Now, some try to explain that in a way and, and say, well, we, we can know like the month or maybe the year. But I really think to have that perspective is really to just wipe away what Jesus is saying here, to sort of sweep that. But, oh, but he just says day or hour. So let me, let me pinpoint it. And I gave you an example last week with the parable of the fig tree. What you have to do is you have to back up and take that simple analogy, change it into an allegory about Israel becoming a nation state in 1948. And then you have to determine that a generation is 70 years, as Moses described in Psalm 90. You add that 70 years to 1948 to come with a return of Jesus in 2018, which didn't happen. So then you have to go back to Psalm 90 and notice that Moses also says a generation can be 80 years. And that's where people now are. They're saying, well, it can be 10 years beyond that. So now they're waiting for Jesus to return in 2028. But they back up seven years from there to get to the beginning of the tribulation and the rapture. And now they have a rapture date of 2021. So make sure you put that in your diaries. Jesus returns for the rapture of the church next year. Don't want to miss that. I think if we go that far, I think we really miss the whole point of what Jesus is trying to say here. Um, it's clear people aren't trying to discern maybe the actual day or uh, the hour. Um, they're using those general signs to try to establish maybe a year, or in some cases, uh, a, a month. But Jesus gave us very clear signs, didn't he? Cl signs that would precede his coming. 
and even some specific signs that would allow us that understanding that, yes, we could understand within a year. But hopefully you were paying attention. None of those signs have happened yet. We don't see those kinds of calamities. We are not in the Great Tribulation. We are not living in a time such as has never been, no, nor shall ever be, right? We are not living in that time at all. And so I think what those people do are ignoring those signs that Jesus clearly detailed as signs of his coming, and instead they come up with their own formula for determining, determining the time. Here's the bottom line is you have to understand that Jesus does not want us to know the day or the hour. He just does not want us to know that. He's not given that to us. And notice what he says in verse 36. The day has been kept secret from even the angels of heaven. Now think about that, folks. The angels of heaven who are roaming around the throne room of God, according to Isaiah 6, right? Waiting to do his bidding. They don't know. Jesus says, the angels see the face of my father who is in heaven, according to Matthew 18, 10. They don't know. They see the face of their father and they don't know. The angels. Even amazingly, at the time that Jesus gave this sermon, according to Mark 13, 32, the day of his return was even kept secret from Jesus himself. And let's look at that verse again. We looked at it last week. Mark 13, 32 says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. So Mark's account includes that phrase, nor the son. Now, last week I mentioned this briefly, but I'd like to take a little more time to explain that today. Because certainly the question is, well, how is it that Jesus didn't know something? I mean, isn't he God? And, and how could he not know something that specifically pertained to him, right? His coming. Well, I think you have to more fully understand the incarnation. Although Christ was fully God and fully man, he voluntarily laid aside this, the use of, of certain divine attributes. He laid them aside when he became a man, and that was his own choice. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, that Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, right? Some of your translations might say that he did not want to grasp that. That's the idea. The meaning is he did not try to hold on to his divinity during his humanness. He didn't lose it. He didn't lose his divine attributes. He voluntarily laid them aside and, and only accessed them when directed by the Father. Now, that is absolutely clear by our study of John last year, right? It's very clear that Jesus only had access to knowledge that his Father wanted him to have access to. In John 5, John chapter 5, verse 30, he said this. This is Jesus' words. I can of myself do nothing, <laughs> right? Look at that. Jesus can't do anything. As I hear, I judge. And my righteous, or sorry, my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. There it's very clear. Jesus doesn't do anything of his own accord. Every action he takes, every bit of knowledge he has is because the Father has determined him to have that. Now, yes, it's absolutely true. When you read the Gospels, you see that Jesus demonstrated those divine attributes Often. I mean, the miracles alone are a testament uh, to that. Walking on water, right? And healing the dead. But, but he even did things like demonstrating his omniscience, right? He knew what people thought. He knew the intents of the heart. He didn't need people to testify to him of men. He knew what was in their hearts. 
but they were self-imposed restrictions. He limited his human knowledge. And I'll just bring this to you. You don't have to look this up. But, but, but back in John 15, he said this to his disciples. He said, I call you servants for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But now I call you friends for all things that I heard from my father, I've made known to you. So it was the father who granted to Jesus certain powers and, and knowledge. And, and his return date was just not one of those things. He did not give Jesus that uh, knowledge. Now, just as a side note, I believe that after the resurrection, Jesus had that knowledge. He came out saying what? All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. So I think afterwards, he had that uh, knowledge. In addition to that, you remember, he, he right prior to his ascension, he's, he's just about to ascend to the Father. He's in the presence of his disciples, and they ask him again, right? Now that he's died and been buried and rose again, Lord, now at this time, will you restore the kingdom to Israel, right? Now, now is it going to be the kingdom? And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons, which the Father has put in his own authority. So he repeats really the same truth from the Olivet Discourse there, but that time he doesn't exclude his own knowledge as he does in the Olivet Discourse. So I think after the resurrection, he, he knows. But in this time, in this day where we come to Matthew 24, Jesus did not know the day or the hour of his return. And he has not made it known to his church. And many people have tried to say, here's where his return is, or maybe here's where the rapture is. I mean, I remember, I remember the billboards going up in California because of the, I forget the guy's name now, that was uh, just telling everybody Jesus was going to return on this certain day, and, and, and then nothing happened. And then they changed the billboards to another day. And um, that has been happening all through church history. He has not let the church know that. In fact, the day or the hour that Jesus is talking about here isn't even the rapture. The rapture's not in view. He's talking about his second coming, isn't he? Um, we'll be raptured prior to all that. But he also hasn't really revealed this to tribulation believers, people that will be alive during that time, the generation that will by no means pass away, right? The reason is he's always wanted to uh, believers to live, no matter what generation you're from, always wanted you to live just in, in, in expectance, expectancy of the imminent return of Jesus. Let me say it that way. That he can return at any moment. Not that we're looking for this to happen first or this for, to happen first, but that he could come at any time. That's how he wants us to live. Now, I'm going to rattle off a bunch of verses that suggest that, that his, his return could be, be any time and sudden and unexpected. And I'm not going to have these for you on the slide. You could just write down the reference. But just to give you an idea of how often we, we see this. In Luke 12, 40, he says, Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour. You do not expect. Very similar to what we see here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22, Paul says, O Lord, come! just come. He's waiting for him at any moment. In Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, right? We're eagerly waiting for him. 1 Thessalonians 5.2, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night, suddenly, unexpectedly, so be prepared is the idea. Titus 2.12 and 13, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10, 25, right? Exhorting one another uh, to meet together, right? And so much the more as you see the day approaching. James 5, 7 and 9, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. 
He says, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Behold, the judge is standing at the door any time now. 1 Peter 4, 7, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. 2 Peter 3, 10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. We'll look at that verse a little bit later on. And then all through Revelation, Revelation 1, 3, the time is near, he says. It's near. Revelation 22, 7, behold, I am coming quickly. I'm coming quickly. Again, in verse 12, behold, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. And again, in verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, surely I'm coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. It seems to me to be fairly obvious that Jesus wants his people to always live with the expectancy of his imminent return. That he can return any moment, which is Jesus' point here. Now notice that he doesn't answer the disciples' first question, when will these things be, right? Not in a specific way, which is why I think he started with the second question first, right? He, rather than answer the first, he answers the second one because, oh, I can give you all the signs. I'll give you all the details of the signs. But the when, oh, it's a different story. So while Jesus does not give them the answer they want, he's giving them the answer they need. And not just them, but all believers from all generations. Remember from our study in 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul called that uh, church to, to the same kind of eagerly expectant you know, re- return of Jesus. In, in Coloss- uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 7, he said this, So that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now think about that. That is a first-generation church, right? First-generation church. That's the beginning of the church. And that church is eagerly waiting for Jesus to return. So in our passage today, Jesus, what he is doing here is he exhorting those that are alive during the tribulation, the, the this generation, to three attitudes, three exhortations, really, that we're going to see here. Be watchful, be ready, and be faithful. So let's look at those three things today. We're going to start with be watchful. Be watchful. And that is in verses 37 to 42. But look at verse 37. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Okay? Very easy beginning here. Everyone knows what the days of Noah were like. What were the days of Noah like? Well, all you have to do is go back to Genesis uh, 6 and begin to read through it, right? And it tells us that the Lord saw that the wickedness of men was great in the earth. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. So there's great evil all over the earth. Man only thinks evil things, only does evil things. And so God's just sorry that he, he's made them. And so many times I see people refer to this verse and say, oh, just as the days of Noah were. And they're looking around at the wickedness of the world and saying, oh, it's, it's, we're just like the days of Noah. We're just like the days of Noah. And, and certainly that is, that is true. You can look at the rampant wickedness on earth now and say, wow, it's just the same level of wickedness on, on the earth now that we're in those days. And, and certainly, no doubt, Jesus is uh, referring to those days in the future as well, right? Um, as the days of Noah were, so also right? It's going to be a wicked time then. Obviously, the earth is filled with violence. But that is not 
Jesus's point here. He's not talking about the wickedness of the world. Think about this. After everything Jesus has described in Matthew 24 up to this point, it's not like he has to stop and say, oh, and by the way, it's really going to be a wicked time. (laughs) I think we get that very clearly by everything he's described. It's very clear from those descriptions of the signs. So what does he mean by, as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be? Well, he gives it to us in the next two verses. Look at it. Verse 38. For, as in the days before the flood, what were they doing? They were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Ah, here is what's being described. What is being described here is not the condition of the world at that time. What's being described is the attitude of the world at that time right? With all that is going on, right? You think about all the signs, all the calamity all over the earth, right? Seas turning to, to, to blood and earthquakes all over the place and darkness and all these things. The, the time such as not been since the beginning, beginning of the world until that time, right? That wickedness, that destruction, that's greater than any period of human history. In the midst of that Holocaust, people are just not going to care. That's what he's talking about. They're not going to care about the fact that he's coming. In fact, they're not even going to be thinking about it. What are they going to be doing? They're going to be eating. They're going to be drinking. They're going to be marrying. They're going to be getting off on, on, on with life as normal, right? That is just very difficult to imagine, first of all, isn't it? It's just hard to just, it boggles the mind. With all that's happening, people won't even be looking. They won't even be considering that. In fact, they'll be scoffing, if anything, right? Believers who at that time will be trying to, to point people to Christ. It's the scoffers of 2 Peter 3, right? They, they describe that, right? It even relates to the flood in that whole passage, right? Well, oh, the earth has always continued as it, as it was, where his is coming, and they just totally ignore the evidence all over the whole world of the flood, that God destroyed the wickedness of man once. He's going to come and do it again. But at this time, you've got to think about it. There's going to be all these great, powerful signs and wonders taking place all over the earth. Movements in the heavens, sun darkened, blood in the sea, the earthquakes, all those things. And what they're going to do is they're going to try to determine scientifically how all these things are happening, right? Why is everything out of whack? They're going to be getting out their slide rules and their almanacs, and they'll be trying to rationalize how all these things are, are, are happening. They're going to look for answers everywhere except for God's word when God has very, made it very plain what those signs mean. Very clear. you got to think, well, how can this be? Is that really what he's talking about? Let me give you a verse, 2 Timothy 3.13. This is a snapshot of the people in that time. But evil men and imposters will grow, will, will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Men... They're evil in their hearts. It's actually going to get even worse during that time. And you have to remember why. During the Great Tribulation, during this period, the church has been removed. There is no sanctifying influence of the church. The Holy Spirit has removed his restraint upon evil, right? The pits, the deep, dark abysses that held incarcerated demons way back from Genesis 6 have been opened. And they're roaming the earth. They're causing all kinds of havoc. And so... It is a time of unrestrained evil. In fact, if you remember back in verse 12, Jesus just said, the love of many will grow cold because lawlessness will abound. Right? Just loveless 
lawlessness. Men's hearts will harden, their consciences will be seared, and they'll just shut their hearts and minds to God. And people will literally be running amok and throw themselves into every form of sin and debauchery imaginable. And so with all those signs, you just think about the abomination of desolation, the disturbances in the heavens, the the preaching of the two witnesses. You think about them in in Revelation and their miraculous um, resurrection after they're, they're martyred. Even the supernatural preaching of the gospel by an angel in Revelation 15. To all those things, many people will respond with indifference. Yeah, there will be those that will be saved through the preaching of that angel, through the preaching of the 144,000 Jewish witnesses, and Israel itself as a nation will experience incredible revival, but the predominant response will be one of unbelief. It is hard to imagine. Or is it? Maybe not really. Because it wasn't really different from when the time when Jesus walked on this earth. And he was healing every kind of disease. And he was casting out demons. And he made water turn into wine. And he calmed a storm. And he raised people from the dead. He did all these things and yet most people refused to believe in him. In fact, if you remember, the Jewish leaders were so eager to discredit him, they accused him of casting out demons by the power of who? Satan. Let me give you an example of that. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you. In Matthew 16, he said that the Pharisees and Sadducees came testing him, and they asked him that he would show them a sign from heaven, which is absolutely incredible. He's been doing all these amazing signs, and so they, well, give us a sign. Show us a a miracle. (laughs) And he answered and said to them, when it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. I mean, you can look at the sky and tell, hey, it's, you know, rain is rain is coming, right? It's not going to be good today, but you can't look around and see what kind of time you're in. That's going to be these people. They should be able to look around with the signs that Jesus has given them, very clear signs, detailed signs, specific signs, and know what kind of time they're in. And they won't. They're just going to continue on, just as in the days of Noah. Think about the days of Noah. God gave man 120 years to repent. That's 120 years. That's how long it took uh, Noah to build the ark to complete its construction. 120 years to repent for 120 years, that ark was a sign. It was a sign, a very visible sign, sitting there out in the middle of nowhere, right, with no water around, a sign that judgment was coming. And in addition, 2 Peter 2.5 tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So he wasn't just building the ark for 120 years, he was preaching to them for 120 years. Yet they just ignored him and they just carried on, eating, drinking, marrying. Now look at that list, eating, drinking, and marrying. None of those are sins. So Jesus isn't talking about the sinful corruption of that time, although that will be very clearly what's taking place in that time. It will be an evil time of corruption. But he's just describing life as normal. They're just going on with life as normal until what? Until the flood came and took them all away. Flood is cataclysmos, right? You can tell where we got that word, cataclysm, right? That's where we get that. It's a deluge. It's a washing away. That is so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. It's going to come like a flood. People will just be going about their business 
and they're going to get washed away. And he gives us an example. Here's a snapshot of life in the future. This is amazing. Look at these two people. Look at verse 40 and 41. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. So he's just taking a snapshot of the normal life, everyday life in Israel, right? And again, a very Israel example here. Two men in the field. Now, first of all, you should know that men and women are not in the Greek. Those, those words, men and women, it is the word one that gives us the gender. So the word one in verse 40 is masculine in gender. So we know he's talking about two men. And the word one in verse 41 is feminine in gender. So we, we know he's talking about two women. So verse 40 is speaking about two men in the field. Where would the men be working in that time? In the field. That's where they would be, right? So he's given us a picture of that time, people going about life as usual during the Great Tribulation, right? Just two men in the field working like they normally would. And then what happens? One is taken, the other's left. Then you have the same example in verse 41, but with two women, right? Two women. And where are they? They're grinding in the mill. Well, that's exactly where they would be, right? The men without uh, thresh the, the wheat, they bring it to the women and they'll grind it in the mill. And the same thing happens, right? One is taken and the other is left. Now, what is happening here when it says one is taken and the other is left? Well, it's obvious from the context, Jesus is giving us a parallel, figure parallel to the unbelievers of Noah's day, right? He's just given us that example. Um, they're taking away where? Those unbelievers. In judgment, in the flood, in the cataclysmos. So when he returns, one is going to be taken away in judgment. This is not the rapture, folks. I can't tell you how many times I've seen people turn to this and say, so the rapture is going to be like this. Two people in the field and one's got, <laughs> the rapture is nowhere in view here. The rapture is way back here. We're way over here. He's not talking about the rapture, and it's obvious in the context. He's talking about the flood coming in judgment. One is taken away in judgment, and one is left. And that has to be the same way it happened in Noah's day, right? Everyone was taken away in judgment. Who was left? Noah and his family. Where were they? In the ark. What were they left to do? Inhabit the new earth. Populate the new earth. The same thing happens here. Everyone has to be taken away in judgment. But we also have to have people in physical human bodies who will remain to inhabit it, the millennial kingdom. We know from scripture that there will be human people in physical bodies. And what I mean is not glorified bodies. Okay, the church at the rapture goes up and we get glorified bodies. The Old Testament saints, glorified bodies. And when we come with Jesus to return at the second coming, we're in glorified bodies. And we're like the angels in heaven who neither marry or are given in marriage. So we can't be those people who are populating the earth. So who is populating the earth? There have to be people remaining who are left. So this is a second coming passage. Those are taken, taken away in judgment, taken with the flood. Those who remain, like Noah and his family in the ark, remain to populate the new earth, remain to populate the millennial kingdom. That is what's happening there. And it's very clear that it's as, as if we had time to go through Matthew 25 with the parables that he tells, that it's a separation that's taking place here. Because in Matthew 25, he talks about the separation of the sheep and the goats. Do you remember that? Actually, I have it backwards. Sheep is on the right hand, goats on the left hand. In fact, let me just take you there real quick. It's Matthew 25, verse uh, 33. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right hand, so those are the sheep, come you, blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom 
prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So the sheep on his right hand, stay, come, come with me, stay, inherit the kingdom. Okay, that's the sheep. The goats are addressed in verse 41. Look at that. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, depart from me, go. You cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So here you have the separation, the example in a parable, right? I'm going to separate people. Some are going to stay, come, stay, inherit the kingdom that I prepare for you. Some are going to go away into what's been prepared for you from eternity to hell. So Jesus has given very clear signs of his coming up to this point, right? Very clear signs. And then he gives us this, this idea that no one's going to know when it comes. It's going to come fast. It's going to come like, like, uh, like it did on, on those in Noah's time, like a flood. And people will just be going about normal life and they'll just be swept away in the judgment. And so the admonition to all then is to be watchful. And that comes in verse 42. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Do you see it now? You got to watch. The word watch is Gregorio. Gregorio. Sometimes it's rendered alert. Maybe it says alert in your uh, Bibles there. And what it is, it's a present imperative. It's a, it's a command. Now, every generation of believers is meant to be watchful. But I should point out that watch is used in various ways in the New Testament. This, this word watch. Um, it's used as uh, the third watch of the night or the fourth watch of the night, which means the guard of the night, right? It's used by Jesus when he was in the garden to pray with his disciples. And he said, hey, watch and pray, lest you what? Enter into temptation, right? It was a, a watchfulness to pray against temptation. And I want to read just a couple of places for you really quick of where you'll find uh, this. In, in 1 Thessalonians 5, chapter, chapter 5, verse 6, which speaks of the day of the Lord, so the second coming, he says, Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Same idea of those sleeping disciples in the garden, right? Don't sleep. Be awake. Be watchful. Why? You might enter into temptation. You might enter into temptation. I'm going to give you another example. It comes from Mark 13, which is the parallel passage of the Olivet Discourse, but it's it's Mark's version. It's Mark 13, and I forgot where Mark is. I'm turning to the wrong place. Mark 13, verse 32. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So that's the verse I read to you. And then it goes on. Take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. So there it is, watch and what? Pray. The watchfulness is connected to the pray, prayerfulness. He says, it's like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming in the evening, at the midnight, at the crowing of the rooster or in the morning. So those are the different watches of the night. Lest coming suddenly, he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. Watch. What's the idea here? Where every, every believer is to be watchful in the idea that we're to be prayerful because we don't want to be falling into temptation. We don't want the Lord to return when we are succumbed to temptation, right? When we're in our flesh. Who wants to meet their Lord that way? Anyone? Any takers? No. Be watchful lest you enter into temptation there. We don't, we don't want that. That's certainly not the idea. 
But I have so many people say, but the watchfulness is, we've got to be watchful. So they're, they're glued to the internet and glued to the news and, and we've got to be watchful, watchful. That's not what he's talking about here. In fact, remember, this is a second coming passage that we're looking at. And so, yes, every generation of believers is meant to be watchful, but it's connected to prayerfulness. But here, during the tribulation, they especially need to be watchful. And in context with what we just saw, what are they watchful for? Well, the coming judgment. And how do you know when the judgment's coming? Oh, the signs. So you've got to be watchful because if you're not, remember, those signs indicate that it is near at the doors, he said in verse 33. So he's coming. And men that are alert to his coming will be ready. Now listen, there are two types of people that are going to be alive during that time. They're going to be believers in the tribulation and there's going to be non-believers. And I really think this is a, an admonition to both categories here. So just stay with me here. Watchfulness. Watchfulness is so important. You want to be watchful so that you're not, you're, you're, you're not into a place of temptation, but particularly during those times that you're, 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 you're looking at those signs, you're knowing that the Lord is coming. But what about the unbelievers? They've been given all the signs here. And he's saying, you, you just need to watch because the flood is coming. And it's going to come and take you away in the judgment. But if you're alert, if you're watchful, then you'll be ready. And that's the second admonition. Be ready. Look at verse 43 and 44. Um, be ready. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Ready is hetoimos. It means to be prepared. Okay, it means to be prepared. How can you be prepared for the coming of Christ in judgment? Just, just think about it for a minute. What would you do to be prepared for that? Well, I better tidy up my house. I better, you know, do the laundry. I better sell it. None of those things will prepare you for Christ in judgment, coming in judgment. What do you need to be prepared? You need salvation. You need to be saved. Here, preparedness is speaking specifically, I think, to being prepared with salvation. Prepared to meet the one who is coming to judge. To judge righteousness and unrighteousness. And I think it's clear by the little analogy that he gives us. Look, he tells us this little story about a thief, right? If the thief were daft enough to notify the master of a house that he plans to rob, that he, that he, that he plans to rob that house on a certain night, then that master, unless he's really daft, uh, he'll be prepared for the coming of that thief, won't he? Right? I'm going to come at, you know, 2 p.m. or 2 a.m. and I'm going to come and rob your house. Okay, well, I'll be ready for you. Now, what? why does Jesus tell this story? Well, Jesus is, he's not comparing himself to a thief in terms of a thief's character, right? I'm going to come and rob your house. Although, if you think about it, when he comes in judgment, he's going to come and take everything you have. So that could be, could be compared to that way. But that's not his point here, Right? It's more in terms of his manner or method that a thief comes stealthily, that he comes at an unexpected time, right? He comes when you're not looking for him to come. And the New Testament frequently compares the second coming to a thief's coming. I'll just list them to you. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, 2 Peter 3, 10, Revelation 3, 3, and 16, 15. They all use that thief idea, but I'll take you to one just so you can see it's Luke chapter 12. Verse 35, Luke 12, 35. This is what it says. Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. Okay, why do I want to be clothed and ready and my lamps on? And you yourselves be like men who wait for their master. When he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may 
open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or the come in the third watch and find them so blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And I find it really interesting that this little uh, parable is a master returning from a wedding. <laughs> because, uh, as I mentioned, the church is gone and we have the marriage supper of the Lamb with the bridegroom, right? And then we return with him. So he's returning from a wedding and he wants people to be ready for his coming, to have their lamps on, to be ready to open the door to him. But if they're there, if he gives the same example, but if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have been prepared, right? He would, would have allowed him to break into the house. So he says here to be, to be ready. So I think in the context, being ready seems to refer to primarily salvation. It's the only way you can be ready uh, for the coming of the one who is going to judge. So you have to be prepared for judgment. And Noah and his family were, weren't they? Because what was the judgment in their time? The flood. How were they prepared for that? The boat. If they didn't have the boat, they would not have been saved. They would have been washed away with the rest. So this all connects together. We just can't dissect all these separate. This is all going together. Keep that image there, right? So he says, so you also be ready. That just means be prepared. Be prepared to meet Christ. They were prepared because, and many look at that Noah Old Testament as an example of Christ, right? Judgment came, but they were in the ark. When judgment comes, you need to be in Christ. There's not going to be an ark for you to climb into, but there's going to be one in whom you can find protection. And the one is the one that's coming in judgment. And it's Christ and Christ alone. There is nowhere else you're going to find that will protect you from judgment. It will be Christ. Peter gives us a picture of this when he talks about Jesus coming as a thief. It's in 2 Peter 3.10, one of the verses that I read off to you. Look at it. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. They're very clearly talking about the second coming as you see the heavens and the earth passing away and all those things happening, right? That's the Lord coming as a thief in the night. And then he asks um, his readers, what kind of people then should you be if you're looking forward to that day of God? What, how, how should you be? And then in verse 14, here's his answer. Therefore, beloved, Looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. So for believers who are looking forward to this in that tribulation time, looking forward to his coming, he says you need to make every effort to be found by him spotless. Well, how are you spotless? You're not, all right? You're not spotless. I'm not spotless. But we are spotless by the spotless blood of Jesus Christ. You need to be found spotless by him. And then when we are spotless by him, then we do try to be spotless in character, right? It transfers that way. Be blameless. Well, are you blameless? No. But when we become saved in Christ, our reputation among the world should be as blameless, above reproach. That's just the manner of a believer. That's how you should live your life. And at peace with him, meaning enjoying the peace of Christ, which does not worry about the fear of impending doom, the coming of judgment. But if you're a non-believer and you're not looking forward to this, you're not considering judgment, what do they need to do? Well, they still need to be found spotless, blameless, right? 
And that only comes through the blood of Christ. They still need to be at peace with God, which only comes through being justified by faith, according to Romans 5.1. That's the only way to have peace with God. So, I think he's talking about spiritual preparedness. Be spiritually prepared to meet Christ as Lord and King rather than judge. He says, you've all been given the details of his coming and so you've got to be watchful. You've got to be prepared to meet him. And one final attitude is addressed and that is faithfulness. And that's this last lengthy section. Let's look at it. He's going to give us another analogy. He tells a parable about a master and a faithful and wise servant. And the question is asked at the very beginning in verse 45. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? So the master has placed his servant as a steward over his household, right? He has stewardship over all the master's goods. And what is it that the master is looking for then when he returns? Well, two servants are compared here. We're going to see first the servant of verse 46, that he is the faithful servant and he's doing what the master ordered. Look at verse 46. Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. So he's doing what the master told him to do. And then in verse 47, he's rewarded accordingly. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. So his reward is that he rules over everything. Okay, but then the servant of verse 48 is an evil servant and his evil actions and the response of the master are described here. And let's look at it. Verse 48, but if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with his drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him and at an hour that he's not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, it's clear from this analogy that God is the master. God is the master, right? And he has appointed uh, stewards, uh, servants. Um, And I believe that all mankind are responsible for what they do with their stewardship from God because we've all been given a stewardship. Um, Every single person on earth holds his life, his breath, his energy, his talents, his abilities, his possessions. All those things he holds um, in trust from God, whether or not he acknowledges that trust. I don't think this is just a picture of a faithful servant being the church or a faithful servant being a, a believer. Um, I, I think the servants generally are all mankind, but the faithful servant, let me say it this way, is the believers, the faithful servant, right? They've submitted to Christ as Lord and master. They've been found faithful. That's the whole idea of what the Lord has entrusted to them. And because they've been found faithful, they're made rulers over the goods of his household. And, you know, that's the idea there, uh, that we're heirs of God, we're joint heirs with Christ. Paul talks about that in Romans 8. Not only that, but Jesus in in Revelation 3.21, take a look at this, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So there will be, a great reward for those that are faithful. They get to rule with Christ. They have rulership over all his his goods. And so I think the faithful servant um, is a, a believer. But the evil servant, who are those, right? Well, they're described as beating their fellow servants. They're described as eating and drinking with drunkards. Now, I don't think those actions are meant to specifically characterize every single uh 
tribulation unbeliever, like that, as if they're all out there beating everybody up and they're all out there eating and drinking with drunkards. But I think it reflects the general attitude of the time, that people are generally just giving into the flesh. They're generally going on impulse, uh, feeding into their passions, just like those in the days of Noah. They're just going about their daily tasks. They're oblivious to the impending doom. They feel free to indulge in whatever sins and desires they, they want. And so Jesus, when he comes, he comes on a day when he's not looking for him and at an hour that he's not aware of, he says. Which means this, they, they won't be looking for him. They won't be looking for him. Some think these are just people in the church and they're just unfaithful servants in the church and they are abusing their power and, 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 and whatever. But notice what it says. These people are going to be caught. They're going to be cut in two. And cut in two is dichotomeo, uh, uh, dichotomy, right? Literally cut in two parts. And the Greek translation of an Old Testament, so the Septuagint, uses that word specifically in terms of the sacrifice of an animal being cut in two. So for a Jewish audience, it definitely had the unmistakable picture of death here. And notice what happens to them after they're cut in two. He will appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. With the hypocrites. I think that doesn't mean that they specifically are hypocrites. Some think that's just, that's just people in the church and they've proven to be hypocrites, so they go to be with the hypocrites. I think the hypocrites have gone to be where the hypocrites are going to be. I think these are outright unbelievers, myself, right? People who couldn't give a care in the world. There are those that are in the days of Noah that are going on eating and drinking and carousing and doing whatever they, they please, and they're outright unbelievers. They're open about that, but they're cast together in the same place with the hypocrites. They're assigned to the place the hypocrites grow. grow. Listen, hypocrites, people who are um, hypocritical in their faith, go to the same place outright unbelievers go because they're all unbelievers ultimately. Does that make sense? They go to the same place. They don't go to separate places. They, they share the same fate. Both are unbelievers. And both go where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. How many times have you heard it People talk about the parties they're going to throw in hell and all those things. Never do you see any kind of description of anyone enjoying anything in hell. It's always weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I think the point is, is here. Jesus says this so many times that you're not going to be looking for him because today uh, so many people think, well, you've given me everything I need. Uh, there's the rapture of the church. So when all these millions of people disappear over the earth, I'll know. Okay, there's a sign. And the tribulation is going to come and the abomination of desolation. I'll be looking. I'll know what to look for, right? And the tribulation is going to be happening and I've got the signs. I'll know what to look for. So when he comes, I'll be, I'll, be, I'll be ready. Let me just ask you, if you're not ready to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ today, what makes you think you'll be ready to bow the knee to him then? What makes you think you'll be looking for him then? Or you'll be even you know, concerned about the, the signs? What's Jesus say five times? You're not even going to know. You won't be looking for him. He's going to come at a time where no one is looking for him. At a day and an hour you don't expect. The thrust of the entire passage is this. Don't be deceived by thinking you have time. I'm coming when you least expect it. I'm going to close with a fable which tells of three apprentice devils who were coming to earth to finish their apprenticeship with Satan. They were talking to Satan, the chief of the devils, about their, their plans to attempt to ruin men. 
The first said, I will tell them there's no God. And Satan said, that will not delude many, for they know that there is a God. And that is true. The Bible tells us that, right? Creation is a testimony to the truth of that there is a God, and men know it deep down. The second said, well, I will tell men that there is no hell. And Satan answered, you will deceive no one that way. Men know, even now, that there is a hell for sin. And that's true as well, because the law of God is written on the hearts of men. The third said, I will tell men that there is no hurry. Go, said Satan, and you will ruin men by the thousand. The most dangerous of all delusions is that there is plenty of time. But James tells us just the opposite. In James chapter 4, he says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. There will be many people boasting about their lives, going on with their lives, not even realizing their life is a vapor. I have time. I have time. I've got all the signs you've given me. I can wait till I can wait till then. You don't know you'll live till then. You don't know that you'll live through the tribulation to meet him, to be prepared to meet him. Just reading this morning from 2 Samuel chapter 3, it's an obscure passage, but it relates well because uh, Abner is the general of Israel and David is the king of Judah. It's sort of a, a, a divided land at the moment. And but Abner is wanting to throw his allegiance in with David, and he's calling the men of Israel to, to, to follow David as king. And he says these two words. He says, take action. Take action. And listen to what Charles Spurgeon writes just about those two words. Some people are in that situation regarding Christ. They may have sought for David to be king over them in times past, but they have not crowned him yet. They must stop thinking, questioning, hesitating, halting, and do one thing or the other. If God is God, serve him. If Baal or the devil is God, serve him. We cannot sit down forever in the absurd condition of believing a thing to be right and yet neglecting it, of feeling ourselves to be in danger and not seeking to escape by the way we admit to be safe and fitting. Jesus Christ the Son of God should rule and reign over our entire nature as our heart's supreme Lord. He is coming back and he is looking for those to be faithful. Faithful. Those who have been good stewards of all that he has given them. Ready, prepared to meet the Lord Jesus and watchful for his return. I pray that if you have not accepted the Lord Jesus Christ in your heart today, that if you have not given him your life, rule and reign to him now, do it today. You do not know that you have time. That is a great deception straight from the pit of hell. Straight from the pit of hell. 
He desires your complete submission to him. And I beg you that you would not waste these weeks we've had with Jesus. Going through Matthew 24, he's been very merciful, very clear to describe all the signs of his coming, everything that will lead up to it. Men will not have an excuse. No one will be able to say, why, I didn't know. You do know. You've been warned. It's the final warning. Also, I will tell you this. Those of you who are listening to this, also, you are not allowed to continue on in ignorance at this point. You have heard. There are some of those who will be ignorant of the truth, never really having heard it. That is not any of you today who have heard this. You're no longer ignorant of the truth. You have heard the call to salvation. You have heard that Jesus is coming to judge sin and that he will sweep away all those that have not submitted to him, taken them away in the judgment. Please don't be one of those people. Let me pray. God in heaven, we do come before you humbled, sober-minded about these sobering words of yours at the end. Lord, that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In fact, uh, Matthew 25 concludes the same way. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Lord, you are trying to wake people up to say the future is hell, the future is torment, the future is separation from God Almighty, and judgment is coming. Yet there's so many people, I look around, and just there's so many people just going about life as normal. And, and Lord, we find ourselves in a, in a midi sort of a mini uh, a tribulation now with the COVID and the lockdowns and things. It will be nothing compared to the times of those days. It is hard to even comprehend that people will just care less, that they'll be indifferent. They will not be contemplating their eternity, their mortality, that they will just carry on with business as usual. Oh Lord, please stir in the hearts of uh, the people today who are hearing this to wake up and to answer the call of salvation. And for your church, Lord, I think the reminder for us all is to be watchful, but not to be watching the news of doom and to be watching in fearful expectation of the coming of the Antichrist. I don't watch for the Antichrist. I watch for Jesus. We wait for you. And Lord, may we be a church who are watchful and ready and faithful to you during this time. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.